This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, welcome back. Mike Smith in for Simi. The John Horgan government here in British Columbia can keep on rolling here until the fall of 2021. Legally, that's how long they can continue to govern if they go the full mandate fall of 2021, as long as their governing agreement hangs together with the B.C. Green Party. I still think, though, that John Horgan might be willing to roll the dice on an early election call. Here's why I think that. First of all, the economy, there's some sort of rough winds on the horizon here. The economy could start to wobble a little bit. You got the Green Party in kind of disarray without a leader right now. This guy has led a bit of a charmed life as a premier here for the last two and a half years. You might not get a better opportunity to go with an early election call than you do this year in 2020. So that's why I continue to think that maybe we're going to get a snap election call in British Columbia this year. Here's the hot question of the day. Do you want one? Do you want a BC provincial election in the year 2020, would you say, yes, bring it on, let's do it, I'm ready for an election, or would you say, no, just delay it now to the fall of 2021, let Horgan govern right to the end of his mandate? At CKNW on Twitter is where you'll find our hot question of the day. So make sure you vote on that one for me today. At CKNW on Twitter. Give me a follow while you're there, please, at Mike Smith News. Smith spelled with a Y, S-M-Y-T-H, at Mike Smith News on Twitter. Phone me on the buzz line in that one. Leave me a voicemail there. 604-331-BUZZ is the number. 604-331-2899. Send me an email to Mike at CKNW.com. Let's bring you the latest now on the brutal strike involving Western Forest products on Vancouver Island started last summer now dragging into month number eight for thousands of workers out of a job i remember before christmas with premier john horgan sort of offering a glimmer of hope to these families saying he wanted that strike settled and he expected it to be settled quickly didn't happen instead there was that very grim christmas for those families affected by this strike, the strike is now dragged on into the new year. And now some more terrible news. Yesterday, the mediators in the dispute have pulled out of the talks, including Vince Reddy. This is the guy who's earned a reputation, I think quite rightly so, was a miracle worker when it comes to bringing two sides together in a labor dispute. And when this guy's throwing up his hands and walking away, you know that this strike is uh, far from being settled, despite what Horgan had to say weeks ago. Let's check in now with Gabby Wickstrom. She is the mayor of Port McNeil, kind of ground zero for this dispute. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi. Hi, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for coming on. This must be terrible news yesterday to hear these mediators have pulled out. When did you get that news and what went through your mind when you heard it? We got the news in the afternoon, late afternoon, actually just as I had ran over to the parking lot behind the hotel where the Loonies for Loggers ladies were handing out food to to people who were in need 
gave him a big hug, and it was shortly after I found out that uh, the mediator walked away. Why have the mediators booked out here? Do you know? Well, obviously, the both sides are at an impasse. They, yeah. I believe they said that they just don't see a way in the immediate future to assist them uh, in a resolution. Yeah, terrible news. I mean, I've talked to Vince Reddy over the years, and this guy has solved some labor disputes that looked absolutely hopeless. So if this guy's walking away, I think that's a, a terrible sign. What's been the reaction in, in the community to this to this news now? Oh, it's people were just are sick. You know, we yeah. I'm walking around with a big knot in my stomach, and I'm sure that there's others that feel exactly the same and worse. Um, as long as we heard that the mediator was there, there was always that little bit of hope. I'm not surprised, yeah. though, honestly, that he, they've walked away. It's been a number of months that they've been there, and they haven't reached anything by now. Something I want to communicate to people in the city, yeah. when I watch the news and I hear 3,000 striking workers, I think, I would think, well, who cares? They asked to go on strike. You know, they they voted for a strike. But even at that time, it was 3,000 striking workers and 6,000 approximately count, um, contractors who were caught in this dispute. That was way back in July. And now, fast forward, we've got mills that are shutting down um, in a number of different communities, and we've heard that's another 4,000 direct and indirect. The coffee shops, all the things I mentioned that was played just earlier before I came on, all those things. You know, I was at the coffee shop this morning, and uh, the one that I've been talking about, one employee, which is the owner, um, or an employee and the owner, that woman was crying. She hasn't paid herself in three months. She can't afford gas for her vehicle. She can't afford the propane to light up the stoves in the back. That's why they're not serving food. It is horrible, and that's just one. I'm sure if I walk through, which I'm planning on doing, speaking to people, there will be story upon story. This is do-or-die time right now. These people are on the precipice, and they're not going to survive much longer. What kind of struggles are people going through? I mean, you've described some of them, but I imagine there must be people who are having trouble making the rent, making mortgage payments, making car payments, maybe even thinking of packing up and leaving town. What, what kind of stories are you hearing about how people are dealing with this? We're, we're hearing that there's people who can't make their hydro bills, and some have been cut off. Um, we're hearing about people who have had deaths in the family and they can't afford to go to the funeral in the interior because the cost is just too high. You know, we've even heard on the island here that somebody who, you know, people who are who have livestock can't get chips for their livestock. So it's not just the forest industry. It's trickled into so many more areas than you can even possibly imagine. Right. It, it has a, like you said, kind of a trickle-down effect too for the wider economy. What's been the impact on sort of you mentioned sort of coffee shops. I just, I, I imagine it's what every business is affected by something like this. Absolutely. So the ones that are direct service to the forest industry, some of the fuel companies, 60% reduction in business. But even the ones wow. such as the drugstore, they have about a 30, 40% drop in business. There's people being laid off all the time. And, and like the woman at the coffee shop said, where do I go to get a job? There's nothing available for me. She doesn't have another option. You know, I'm a, I'm a business owner as well, and if, if I couldn't make bills because the economy was slow at the time, I could go anywhere and get another job to supplement my income. That is not an option for people. Speaking to Port McNeil Mayor Gabby Wickstrom about the continuing Western Forest Products strike, terrible news on this strike yesterday with the mediators involved walking away from the table. And as you heard her say there, I think 3,000 workers, that's, that's the number that gets in the headline. But like you said, there are bigger numbers 
of contractors and other people affected by the spin-off damage. And I think that's something that's important for people to keep in mind, is the scale of this thing. I mean, this thing is huge. Well, and the question has to be asked, when do the gains outweigh the, the costs? And, and we are now at, at the place where it's outweighing the 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 gains are outweighing, or the costs are outweighing the gains. You know, the the government has a number of things for the Section 8 Labor Code. So mediation services and a special mediator, that's what they've done. And they've reported to them and, you know, given them their findings. The only thing really that's left is an industrial inquiry commission, and it's meant for exactly this kind of situation. I'm just going to quickly read. It says, The Minister of Labour and Citizen Services may appoint an industrial inquiry commission to maintain or secure relations stability and promote the conditions leading to the settlement of disputes. So this is a specific mandate that comes from the minister. And the union and and the employer can agree to be bound by the report or not, but it is a report that's an independent report, and it is made public. So I really don't see any other option. No, I mean, I think the government should have done that a long time ago instead of letting this drag on for eight months. I I totally agree with you. Uh, We're going to get into uh, in the next segment about some of the options that are available to government, but how they can intervene here. I think it's long overdue. I remember talking to you many weeks ago when this strike was dragging on, and you told me what it was like for you as the mayor in this town. And you said that, some days it's almost like being a, a grief counselor as, as you deal with kind of the emotional toll from this. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, what kind of emotions are people going through and what are you sort of seeing on the front lines? Well, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. You know, you hear about them not being able to pay bills. You hear about um, a young family who was, who was set up for, you know, whatever could happen. They always tell you should have three months saved up. They had a considerable amount of money saved up. They have nothing left. Their husband now has to go and work somewhere else, can't even afford plane ticket back home again. And so now the wife, she is a, a single mother at home raising the kids. The woman at the coffee shop crying because she can't, you know, she can't afford a phone bill. She can't afford her gas. Those are the kinds of things that keep me up. These are the people that are caught in a crossfire right now. Yeah, and these are the kind of things that can destroy families, really. I mean, you can have family family is sort of splitting up and you know husbands and wives are splitting up with the anxiety and stress over stuff like this mm-hmm. absolutely um and you know we've heard there's school lunch programs triple the uptake in those lunch and breakfast wow. programs and some of the people who manage them said kids are coming up to them saying i wish i could get a job so that you know my mom and dad don't have to worry so much <sighs> what's your message to premier john horgan this morning about what should be done here come come to these communities Come and talk to people. Don't just talk to the people who are on the picket line, because that's one aspect. But talk to the broader community. Walk into the coffee shop. Look at that woman who's crying because she can't pay her bills. Talk to the young mother who's now raising the children on her own. And talk to all these people who are deferring their mortgage payments and and will have to, you know, possibly have a year's worth of mortgage payments to catch up on again. Come and look them in the eye and come and tell them that the best solution is reached at the bargaining table. Thank you for coming on. All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. That is Gabby Wickstrom. She is the mayor of Port McNeil. Just kind of ground zero for this Western Forest product strike. This is a brutal strike. It's dragging on into month number eight now. 3,000 workers out of a job. But as you heard her describe there, the spinoff effect, the thousands of contractors and other dependent businesses also on tough times in northern and central Vancouver Island. 
I think the government should be intervening here, and they should have been intervening a long time ago. John Horgan, I'm telling you, in the year-end interviews he did with the media before Christmas, laying out the hope for people that he wanted this strike ended and he wanted it ended fast. I think a lot of people got their hopes up when they heard him say that. Now, here we are many weeks later, and it continues to drag on. I think the government should be intervening here. We'll talk more about that when we come back. Stick around. Hey, welcome back. This is Mike Smith filling in for Simi Sarah as we continue talking about this brutal forestry strike on Vancouver Island. 3,000 people out of work for going on eight months now. But as you heard the mayor of Port McNeil describe there in the last segment, this affects so many other people beyond the employees that are directly impacted by this strike. You've got 9,000 contractors who are feeling the pinch on this and a lot of them out of work. You've got all the dependent businesses up and down these small towns on the north and central uh, portions of Vancouver Island. I'm telling you, if there was a strike like this going on in the lower mainland, I think the BC government would have intervened a long, long time ago. Instead, this thing continues to drag on. The worst news possible yesterday is with Vince Reddy and another mediator walking away from this table. This guy has got a reputation as the miracle worker. If he's walking away, this is a problem, and I think it's way overdue for the government to do some more intervention here. Now, the line from the B.C. government on this strike has been very consistent that they want a deal at the bargaining table, and they didn't want to get more aggressively involved. They have taken some steps to help. The most recent one was a program for logging contractors affected by this strike. They can apply uh, for loans from the government to help make payments on their logging equipment. There have been some other measures the government has brought forward here to help people impacted by this brutal strike. But more and more people, as you heard the mayor there say, we want something more aggressive uh, in terms of intervention from this government. What about an industrial inquiry commissioner? This is open to the government. What about some other steps that the government can do? Way, way overdue for the people who are suffering from this strike. Let's check in with the uh, liberal opposition now. John Rustad is the liberal forest critic, and I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing great. Thanks for coming on. What went through your mind when you heard that Vince Reddy, the, the greatest mediator we got here in the province, has walked away from this dispute? Well, I can tell you um, what first came to my mind was the families that are being impacted. And, and it goes beyond, as you said, the, um, the, the actual people on strike, uh, the families, the mom and pop little shops, coffee shops, etc. But also throughout the forest sector, you've got Mosaic that is now uh, still off now for more than two months, 2,000 people directly impacted by that, and all the spin-offs up and down the coast. Our forest sector on the coast is in a crisis, and... I, I just, for the life of me, I can't understand why this government doesn't step in and be able to help this sector get back on its feet. Okay, well, the government says they are trying to help, and they also say consistently that the best way to settle this is at the bargaining table with a, a negotiated settlement, which I think a lot of people would agree with. That That's the best way to get out of this is a deal. But if you can't get a deal, what sort of options are left? Well, this, this is the challenge. You know, you have one player that has said they would be willing to accept binding arbitration. Uh, they'd be willing to accept recommendations uh, from Vince Reddy. The other side has said... Which, which, no side, way, which, side, which side wants the binding arbitration or is open to it? 
Um, the company, Western, yeah. has said publicly they're willing to accept binding arbitration. They would right. be willing to accept recommendations coming from Vince Reddy. And the USW has refused. And so we are in that situation where, um, you know, negotiations aren't going to go anywhere. And unless there is recommendations that come forward uh, through an industrial inquiry commission or through work with Vince Reddy, there isn't going to be the impetus at the table to actually get a deal done. And this could carry on for a long time yet. Okay, USW, as you mentioned, is the United Steelworkers Union, and this is a union that is particularly close to the NDP, correct? Yes, they have. Uh, they were the largest donors, the largest backers of the of the NDP, and so yeah. the NDP isn't basically willing to step in and do anything unless the USW gives them permission to do it, and that is a very unfortunate situation. Oh, okay, when there are so many people suffering here, at some point I think there's a tipping point and I think Horgan, I mean, I sat down with John Horgan before Christmas and he did legitimately seem to me like he wanted this deal done. He wanted this thing resolved. And I don't think it's a question of him just sort of sitting back saying, I don't care. I think he wants the deal done, but in an industrial inquiry commissioner, which for some reason the government has resisted to this point, how would that work and how would it help in your opinion? So the Labour Code has a number of tools available to government um, to help resolve the situation. So it's not a matter of coming in and, and uh, legislating a deal. And what an Industrial right. Inquiry Commission does is you, you uh, employ a couple of people that go in, they talk to both parties, they um, um, look around at the industrial standards that are around what else is being done uh, throughout the province and, and the region, and then come with some recommendations to government to say, this is what's happening at the bargaining table, this is what um, is happening, you know, in, in terms of uh, industry around the province. Uh, and here's where we think a deal could be struck. And so it, it goes in and it, you know, it calls it like it is. It points figures if somebody's being a jerk at the table. Uh, you know, it, it reports on that and uh, says this is where we think, you know, a deal well, could be struck. And it can be used at the table then by the by both parties to say, let's get this done. Yeah, but if you got a guy like Vince Reddy who's been involved here, a veteran mediator who has seemed to bridge unbridgeable gaps in the past and he can't get a deal, how is some other sort of bureaucratic exercise going to make any difference? I mean, I guess my question to you is, does the government need to intervene and legislate a settlement? Just in 30 seconds here we got well, the bottom line is if an industrial quarry commission can't do it, then uh, there is very few yeah. other options. And when you look at the number of people being hurt by this, uh, I think it's incumbent upon okay. government to uh, ease that pain, be able to get the industry okay. back on its feet, and find a way to be able to bring those parties together. And okay. if that has to be legislation, then uh, you know it okay. would be a last option, but it has been done in the past, and it is okay. available to them. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Take care. Okay, that's John Rustad. He's the liberal forestry critic. They got to do something. That Industrial Inquiry Commissioner, it should be done today. All right, this is Mike Smith in for Simi. Let's talk about the Trans Mountain Pipeline now. The fight over this mega project has been raging for years, but now pipeline supporters celebrating after a huge legal victory in the Federal Court of Appeal. In a unanimous ruling, the court says consultation with First Nations has been adequate. The First Nations opposed to this pipeline do not have a veto over the project the pipeline gets the green light again is that the end of this fight do the pipeline opponents now 
admit defeat and does the pipe go into the ground now or does the battle continue we've assembled a great panel for you on this got both sides of it for you uh, on the line, Sven Biggs, a climate and energy campaigner with Stand.Earth. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Sven. Hey, thanks for having me back, Mike. Thank you for coming on. Also in the studio, Adam Pankratz. He is a full-time lecturer, strategy and business economic uh, professor at the UBC Souter School of Business. He supports the pipeline. Adam, thank you for coming in. Pleasure to be here, Mike. Appreciate it a lot. Adam, let me go to you first. The court victory for the supporters of this pipeline, is that the end of this now? Is, is the fight over and does this pipe go into the ground now? Well, I can't presume to to know what the opponents are going to do, um, but I think you know. Yesterday, there are three things that are really important. There was clearly a victory for TMX proponents and supporters. Um, it was a validation of the government and its consultation process, and I think it was a great day for Canada, demonstrating that we are able to build these large infrastructure projects that are in the national interest. And that when we do so, we do them to the higher environment, highest environmental and cultural uh, standards uh, that that are are available. And I think if we take a step back too and look at the larger process of TMX, I think it's really important to remember that this has been a, a victory. I think for uh, Indigenous communities, uh, demonstrating that the initial consultation was clearly inadequate, and that it needed to be better, and and that it had to be redone. And and now that we have uh, clarity from the courts on what constitutes adequate, meaningful, and sincere consultation. Uh, that's a great thing, reaffirming the rights of Indigenous communities. And it also is, from a business point of view, a really good thing because it provides us with a very clear framework okay. on what it's going to look like for future projects of this nature. Okay, let's go to Sven Biggs. I'm sure he doesn't think it's a very good thing with this court ruling. Sven, your thoughts? Well, clearly we're disappointed with yesterday's ruling. Uh, I think it's important for folks to know that um, another aspect of this case has already been appealed to the Supreme Court, and we're waiting for a ruling from that. And the nations who are involved in the challenge are uh, considering their legal options and are, are, I think, very concerned about yesterday's ruling and, and may choose to appeal that decision as well to the Supreme Court. So the, the legal fight around this project is far from over. Okay, do you see, I'm trying to see grounds for an appeal here, because I think one of the things that has struck a lot of people, Sven, about this ruling is just how clear and definitive it is. And I think it, in many ways it's a landmark ruling. When it says, for example, that the case law is clear, Indigenous people can assert their opposition to a project, but they do not have a veto over the project. I mean, isn't that the bottom line, that First Nations can't stop this? Well, I mean, that's, in many cases, if you look at the, the ruling yesterday, that's not what First Nations were were asking for a veto. They were asking uh, for some serious changes to be made to the project, whether that's changing the location of the terminal somewhere that's more environmentally appropriate uh, to avoiding First Nations cultural sites like Lightning Rock near the Sumas Terminal, or uh, rerouting out of a community's uh, source of drinking water, like in the case of the Coldwater First Nation. Those are legitimate uh, changes to the project that First Nations have asked for, and yesterday's court ruling denies them. 
I think there is grounds for appeal there. Adam Pankratz, what do you think of that? Well, I don't think that's entirely accurate. I mean, the the the, the cold water um, drinking water issue that Sven's bringing up, uh, the routing of the pipeline is yet to be determined, and the uh, cold water First Nations are going to have absolutely an opportunity to express the specifics of where they think that should go and make sure that it is not negatively impacting their community. Um, and there are there are certainly some details to be worked out on the exact ruling of the pipeline, but you know, overall. Uh, this pipeline has been supported by all of the 43 First Nations uh, whom the pipeline uh, touches. There have been benefit agreements signed. Uh, Adam, I want to correct you. There's over yeah, 150 First Nations that have been impacted. Less than a third of them have signed impact agreements. No, I, that, Many of them are still fighting this project, that, whether they're in the courts or on the land. No, I, I'm referring specifically to the 43 whose land is touched by the um, There's 150 nations and, that are touched yep, by this well, pipeline. Hang on, hang on, guys. Hang, just hang on, Sven. So, but in, in the court ruling, I mean, they made it quite clear that there are 120 uh, First Nations that uh, either support or do not oppose. So I think, uh, you know, there is not unanimity in First Nations' no. opinion on, on this project, but there is uh, certainly, uh, by all accounts, uh, a large majority who support it and agree that it is uh, a good thing for their communities, that it is a project which is in the national interest, and it is one that they support and they view as one which brings right. jobs and opportunity and money to their communities, and that's Sven, a good thing. Sven Biggs. Well, I mean... One nation cannot agree to a project for another. We wouldn't let uh, the Swiss sign off on a pipeline that went through France and the, you know, Stolo can't sign off on a pipeline that goes through Swalotu's territory or Kwantlen territory. Um, each of those nations needs to give their own consent to this project, and that hasn't happened yet. So I think there is still a very open debate around First Nations' consent in this project, and... Um, we're going to see a number of nations continue to fight it, either through the courts or on the land. And this, I think, issue is only going to continue to heat up, especially if the government tries to build this pipeline while it's still being litigated. I, I just, I, I don't think that's what the courts ruled. I mean, I think they made it quite clear, and they, and they said that the, uh, the, the, the consultation and, and consent, it does not mean that the uh, interests of Indigenous peoples are required to prevail. So I think the courts were cl quite clear in that, yeah. that they may still oppose it, but that doesn't mean that the project cannot proceed. Let me, Sven, let me ask you this. You mentioned that First Nations might continue to fight this pipeline in the courts, but also on the land. What is the potential from, from your perspective as kind of a frontline activist fighting this camp, this pipeline? Could we see civil disobedience, people lying down in front of bulldozers, mass arrests? I mean, what are you hearing about the, how determined people are to stop this? Well, I mean, there, there have already been over 300 arrests between the protests that happened in 2018 and 2014 against this project. Um, there are folks like the Tiny House Warriors on Swapamak territory that are already preparing to blockade uh, the construction of a man camp in the, their traditional territories. Um, and I hear from other communities up and down the pipeline that they are, are ready to take action if that is required. So I Adam, think Adam, that, Yeah, Adam Pankratz, what do you say to that? 
Well, I, I, I think that would be disappointing if it happened. I mean, I think the rule of law is a two-way street. And um, if, uh, if one side is, is required to follow it, then I, I think it would be disappointing if it came to um, such physical confrontation. So I, I hope that opponents will respect the court's ruling and that they will recognize that there has been adequate and sincere and meaningful consultation uh, and that this project ultimately okay. is in the natural interest and, and should okay. proceed. Okay, guys, I'll just jump in there. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk more with my guest, Sven Biggs. He's opposed to the Trans Mountain Pipeline. He's with Stand.Earth. Adam Pankratz from UBC. He supports the pipeline. Uh, over to you now and your calls on the open line. What are your thoughts about this big court ruling yesterday on this pipeline? Do you support this pipeline? Or are you opposed to it? 604-280-9898 is the number to jump on board if you want to get involved in our conversation. 604 604- Two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight star ninety eight ninety eight toll free in your cell. This is Mike Smith. More after this. All right, welcome back. This is Mike Smith in for Simi as we continue talking about the Trans Mountain Pipeline and that crucial court decision that came down yesterday from the Federal Court of Appeal. Pipeline supporters celebrating after the High Court uh, gives the project the green light again. But is the fight over? Opponents of the pipeline say the battle's going to continue. My guests are Sven Biggs, Stan.Earth. He's opposed to the pipeline. Adam Pankratz, UBC. He supports it. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898, toll free in your cell. Carl on Vancouver Island. Hi. Hi there. How are you? I'm good. Good. Go ahead. You know, uh, it, it's so frustrating that when the protesters win in court, everybody damn well better listen to the ruling. Yet when they lose, they just simply say they're going to keep on protesting, keep on protesting. And at this point, if you get in the way, the RCMP should be there to pick you up and haul you away. We have gone through every single step that they've asked for, and we've, and we've followed the rule of law, and so now it's time to move forward. You cannot hold a whole country hostage because of your decision not to follow the court's decision. That's all. Okay, Sven, what do you say to him? Well, this is a uh, political as well as legal debate. Um, obviously, the Liberal Party has stepped right into the middle of this by buying the pipeline. They're still a decision maker in this process. Um, there's a long history of peaceful civil disobedience, both in this province to stop projects like Clackwatt Sound and around the world in cases like uh, the civil rights movement in the United States. When people feel that laws are unjust, they sometimes choose to step up and break the law and then face the consequences for those actions. Yeah, but is, I that, mean, that is, are, there, are there any circumstances where Stand.Earth or any of the other groups opposed to this pipeline would turn around and say, yeah, okay, I guess we lost. The courts have made a very clear judgment here and we're going to go away now. Or do you guys just fight to the very end? Well, I mean, uh, we're prepared to, to keep fighting. Um, we're, we look at this as an imperative. Canada can't continue to grow oil and gas sector and its climate emissions we are in a climate crisis and there just isn't a way that this project can fit into a sustainable economy so we have to continue to say no bernie and mission on the open line hi thanks for taking my call um sure i'm going to ex- uh, excuse me uh, um say i agree completely with the previous caller uh, I am very frustrated, too, with people who, you know, jump up and down when the court finds in their favor and just basically thumb their nose at the court when it doesn't. 
Um, but uh, the reason I phoned is two things. Number one, to say I am in favor. I've gone back and forth on this many times. It's not an easy subject, that's for sure. But ultimately, you can't turn the tap off overnight. And it's not just gas and oil for cars that we use uh, petroleum for. Secondly, um, I would be really curious to know if anyone can explain to me where the First Nations seem to get this endless supply of funding for court battles. I'll hang up and listen to your answer. Okay, thank you, Bernie. Uh, Adam, let me go to let me go to you. Uh, your thoughts on where this goes from here? Well, again, I I can't presume to know how how uh, the the First Nations are going potentially to pursue this in court to the Supreme Court, uh, which would be the the last remaining option, or what the protesters are going to do. But I think the previous caller you know raises a good point about the the impact and value of this project. Uh, the the taps can't be turned off overnight and and they won't be that's the other thing uh this oil is going to come out of the of of the oil sands and uh you know we see that through the alberta government leasing their 4400 rail cars and if it's not coming out through uh the the expansion of the tmx pipeline it's either coming by rail which is far riskier and far more of a danger to the environment or it's going to end up in the United States and come out on, on tankers, which are not regulated to our standards either, which are also going to be in in in, in, in around our coastal waters. So I Sven. think, yeah, Sven Biggs, what do you say to that? Well, I would say uh, first of all that um, rail and pipelines are about e- equally risky. They're both bad, and we should oppose both of them. That's not true. Uh, secondly, I would say that. Um, this oil isn't going to make it to market if, if there isn't pipeline capacity. This is about expanding the tar sands. We're not saying turn off the taps tomorrow. Uh, we use oil. We understand that. We're saying we need to stop growing this industry in a climate crisis. It's the largest source of emissions in Canada, the fastest growing source of emissions. We can't allow that to continue to happen. How can you say that transporting oil by rail car is equally risky as a pipeline? I mean, isn't it pretty much clear that the data is that pi- pipelines are safer? So the data shows that with pipelines, you get fewer but larger spills, and with rail, you get more spills, uh, but they're smaller in quantity. So it's kind of six of one and half dozen of the other. We've worked to stop both oil by rail projects and pipelines here at Stan. We've stopped over 20 rail terminals up and down the west uh, coast of the United States. Um, and we think they're both bad for communities. Okay. Let's go to Brian and Surrey in the open line. Hi. Hi there. Yes, um, there's a couple things. One, Just give me, give me one thing, okay? Just give me one thing. Okay, well, there is no climate crisis. And, um, oh, boy. Okay, Adam, do you, what do you think? What about the climate situation, the climate crisis, the climate emergency? What do you say about that? No, I, I, I do not agree with that caller. I think we do need to be very conscious of our emissions and, and we should be finding ways to uh, transition to fossil, uh, away from fossil fuels. And I'm, I'm fully supportive of that. I think yeah. the argument uh, for the Trans Mountain Pipeline is that that's not going to happen overnight, right? That, that, that the transition away from fossil fuels is likely going to be measured in decades, uh, not years. And, um, and if we're going to have a, a successful Canadian economy, that is the most responsible with regards to okay. extraction of oil and, and consult, consultation with Indigenous communities, this is a good project and it Sven. should move ahead. Spend 30 seconds, you get the last word. Pipelines are long-term instru- infrastructure. This isn't about where we get our gas from in 10 years or next year. It's about where our grandkids will be getting their energy from. 
Uh, the current pipeline's been with us 60 years. The new pipeline would need to run for 30 years to pay itself off. Okay. We've got 10 years, according to the United Nations, to address the climate crisis. It just doesn't fit into the future of Canada's climate. Guys, thanks to both of you for coming on. I really appreciate it. That's Sven Biggs, Stand.Earth, Adam Pankratz from UBC. Didn't get through in the open line. Phone me on the buzz line. Leave me a voicemail there, 604-331-BUZZ. Speaking of elections, will there be a provincial election in British Columbia in 2020? I still think it's a very live possibility, even though Premier John Horgan could go all the way to the fall of 2021 before he has to face the voters again. I think he might go early. Let's check in with Mario Canseco now, the president of Research Company, who's done an interesting poll on this. Mario, thanks for coming on. My pleasure, Mike. Great to chat with you. Okay, what did, your, uh, what did you ask in your new poll about this and whether we could see an early election in B.C., and what did you find out? Well, we find that there's definitely appetite for an early election uh, when it comes to British Columbians, uh, but it's not those who maybe you're thinking are more likely to say that they're happy with this prospect. You know, we have 51% of B.C. residents who say they expect to have an early provincial election this year. One-third say they don't, uh, but it's an actually higher number who believe that the election is actually going to happen. And what is really fun about this is the appetite for an early election is definitely strongest with people who voted for the B.C. Liberals back in 2017 and not as strong with those who voted for the NDP or the Green Party. Okay, so if you voted liberal, maybe you might be inclined to vote liberal again. Does, is it understandable, Mario, that maybe some of those people would like to see an election if they want to, you know, kick the bums out? Oh, definitely. I think there's an appetite here, and there's an opening uh, that the BC Liberals may have because of the situation that we have right now in Victoria. Uh, I think there's a lot of BC Liberal voters who are looking at this as an opportunity with a new Green Party leader who may or may not support uh, the deal that is in place right now to allow John Horgan to be the head of government here in BC. And they believe that it's a good opportunity for them to talk about different things and, and try to win a couple of seats, because ultimately that's all it takes. You just need to flip a few seats and then you can be the next premier. Yeah, under the old system we used to have, Mario, it used to be a premier's prerogative or a prime minister to call an election whenever he or she wants to call an election, basically. But then we got into scheduled elections and fixed election dates, right? So what when is the next scheduled election in British Columbia? Well, technically, it should be in, in October of next year. Uh, we had a situation right. uh, where the all of the elections that we've had in this century, and we haven't had a single one that was early, uh, were held in May. And there was this discussion to maybe have the election later on. So to have it in October... Uh, it's essentially what is going to be happening. So it's going to be a slightly larger term uh, for John Horgan if it goes all the way. Um, now, now, if it were to happen this year, uh, there's a couple of issues that we need to remember. You know, there's the, the last two elections that were called early at this level in Canada didn't uh, fare equally. Uh, Jim Prentice called an election back in 2015 in Alberta, ended up with Rachel Notley becoming premier. And just last year, uh, Brian Pallister in Manitoba called the early election because he wanted to capitalize on a, an NDP leader that wasn't well known and ended up having a larger majority than he had. So mm. it's really hit or miss when it comes to engineering your own demise and asking voters to support you again. I remember many years ago, an Ontario premier named David Peterson rolling the dice on an early election call. He was way ahead in the polls. I remember covering that election, and man, did that ever backfire on him. The NDP ended up coming out of nowhere, and Bob Ray ended up as the Ontario Premier. Sometimes these things can backfire if you call an early election, right? 
Absolutely. I think there's yeah. no better example than what we saw in Alberta. Uh, Jim Prentice yeah. was coming out of a situation that was definitely better for his party. He was able to bring back some of the Wild Rose Party members who were elected as Wild Rose Party members and bring them into the PC fold. And when the election was called, uh, we had 30% of Albertans who didn't know who Rachel Notley was. The NDP was in fourth place. And after a few weeks of the campaign, uh, she ended up becoming premier. So there's always an opportunity to establish that emotional connection with the voters, even when you think that you're going to be successful, because the numbers can change very rapidly. Speaking to Mario Canseco from Research Co. So right now, as you mentioned, Mario, John Horgan He doesn't technically have to face the voters until October of 2021. But that that depends on him surviving in this legislature, right? Which I mean, there's still very close standings. It's still a minority government. He's got to keep that governing agreement together with the Green Party who are going to get a new leader. Well, that is essential for the survival of this particular government. The other one is to make sure that nobody gets sick, that if you have a vote that is important, all the NDP members are there. I think it's definitely made it a little bit more complicated uh, for some of the NDP members to go back to the writings, for some of the ministers to, to, to maybe travel more, because there's always the opportunity that the government could fall. Um, that being said, you know, it has been uh, fairly successful in the way people tend to look at this. We didn't ask voting intention in this particular survey, uh, but the last time we asked, uh, we definitely saw a higher level of support for John Horgan and more residents of BC being satisfied with what is happening than what we're seeing, for instance, in Ontario uh, with Doug Ford or with Jason Kenney in Alberta. So there's definitely that level of emotional connection that is still there with the base of the NDP, uh, but campaigns matter, and if something goes wrong, it could definitely yeah. move some of those voters from the NDP to the Liberal caller. Uh, okay, when you take a look at voting intentions right now, because I know your poll did did ask people whether they would consider voting for the NDP in the next next election. This government's doing pretty good here, right? How did how did Horgan do in this poll here on voting intention? Well, it goes very well. We have three in five British Columbians, that's 60%, who say they would definitely or probably consider voting for the BC NDP in the next provincial election. It's a little bit yeah. lower for the Liberals at 54 a, a percent. Uh, BC Conservatives and the BC Green Party further back with 46 and 45 percent. Now, one thing we need to remember when we're pondering the BC Conservatives is, will they have the capacity to run candidates in every single riding? In the last election, they only ran in 10 seats. So right now we may have a lot of people who are flirting with the idea of voting conservative, but when the election rolls around, they may not find a candidate in the riding. Okay, so Horgan can technically go all the way to the fall of 2021, but he can always go early, right? How does he do that? Would he have to go to the lieutenant governor and say, look, I I want an election now? Does he got to make a case for an early election in order for her to say okay? Yeah, you know, one of the things that could conceivably happen would be Uh, to say that the deal that was signed was signed under a different Green Party leader and that uh, unless uh, there's an election, we can't really know if the residents of BC are satisfied with this and wanted to keep going all the way. I think that would be one of the justifications that that could be used there. Uh, The other one is whether there's an early retirement, whether there's a situation where somebody decides to leave, you need to call a by-election, that could throw everything into chaos. And uh, it might be simpler for them to essentially say, let's just do this again and try to see if it's going to work out. Uh, There's also the situation that we need to deal with with the BC Green Party. Uh, If if the leader, uh, if whoever becomes leader of the Greens provincially decides that it's not in their best interest to continue with this, then the government falls. 
Welcome back to the show. Mike Smith in for Simi. Let's talk a little ride hailing now. And if you want to be a ride hailing driver, I think this is something that's gone through a lot of people's minds thinking like, you know, maybe this would be kind of a profitable little side hustle for me. Be a, a, a ride share driver. Why not? Well, what do you have to do in order to become a ride hailing driver? Let's check in with Dylan Green now. He's the CEO of Whistle Rideshare. This is the other ride sharing company uh, that's been approved to operate in British Columbia. They'll be operating in Whistler, and they are up and running today in Tofino on Vancouver Island. Dylan, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks a lot, Mike. Okay, so you're up and running in Whistler already, right? No, Tofino. Oh, okay. We just started just today at 11 with our first rides. Uh, Whistler's going to be on Monday, so ah. we're launching first in Tofino um, getting our feet wet, you know, to say. It's raining out in Tofino, of course, today. <laughs> and uh, Whistler will be Monday. You know, Whistler is prime time right now. It's their peak season. Um, so we're just making sure everything's perfect for when we launch in, in Whistler because it's going to be a busy day. Is that why you called your app Whistle? Because you'll be operating a Whistler? That was a big part of it, for sure. We yeah. saw yeah, we saw that in the name. And, and uh, we're just trying to keep it keep it fun you know that's really you know, we want to get there make it fun in the app when we when we get all our little kinks sorted out but maybe the app will whistle at you when your rides at your place you know oh, so we're okay. Just... okay i think it's a good name what do you got to be what do you got to do to be a ride hailing driver let's let's start first of all with the class four commercial driver's license have you got one of those yourself a class four I do, I do. I have a class two. I actually used to have a bus company. So, so anything um, like class two and class one, of course, can do class four. There's two levels of class four. There's restricted class four, which is when you take your road test in your own vehicle. So that's like nine passengers plus you. And then there's unrestricted class four, which is uh, sort of like a mini bus driver. So up to 24 passengers. So really, you know, when you do a restricted class four, you're going to take the road test in your own car and try not to be intimidated when you go to take your knowledge test. The very first step is getting your knowledge test. Um, you, you, you go with the ICBC auto plan, and you get the commercial um, booklet that you have to study on to pass your knowledge test, and it's a big book. You know, it's got everything in there to air brakes for class one, class two, class three, class four. So you really got to focus on the sections in the book that are really just talking about class four restricted, right? So hopefully, you know, ICBC will come out to really help you know, rideshare drivers get on board is, is, is put out a booklet that's just focusing on restricted class four drivers because, you know, when you're driving your own car, you don't need to know about air brakes, right? So, oh, yeah. um, so you know, I don't want anyone to get overwhelmed. Like we have run three sessions, um, two in Whistler and one in Tofino, just, just welcoming anyone that's curious about driving and giving them little tips, um, going through the book, showing them what chapters to study, giving them tips about, you know, what to expect when you take your knowledge test and yeah, the booklet's a bit overwhelming, so we're just trying to yeah. you know let people know that hey, you know you don't need to do this section on air brakes, right? So, but would you be tested on that though? And I agree with you, by the way. Like for a lot of people saying, I just want to be a ride hailing driver. I'm not driving a Mack truck here. Why do I got to learn about air brakes? But when you do a test, do they test you on that stuff? Do you got to know it? They do test you on a lot of the chapters, but specifically air brakes, you know, you're not going to have to take some of those, those chapters. And so oh. in the first couple of pages, there's a good little grid that tells you, you know, if you're taking this test, you have to study these chapters, yeah. you know. And so, you know, we're just, the big thing is just trying to get people to take the test, you know. You can do it again if you don't pass the first time. And there's lots of, on ICBC, and actually ICBC app, there's a great little um, tester app that will go through a mock test 
a mock knowledge test for you. So just keep doing those those tests. And then actually the Richmond Library has a really good link for some road signs you got to know. So I would just keep doing those 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 mock tests until you feel comfortable. And I think the key thing is once you pass your knowledge test is book that road test, right? Because there's only so many road tests. And so just as soon as you pass, there's no delay that you have to do to do your road test. And the road test is in your own car. Like it's, it's it, you know, you're comfortable in your own car, you know, you know, that that's almost going to be the easy part of it. Right. So um, you were just really trying to break down those barriers. So there's nothing right. you know, too crazy here. Um, you know, just get your uh, knowledge what's, test. What's the typical waiting time to actually get one of these licenses? How long does it take? Well, you know, if you say you take a week to study, do your knowledge test, and then I think average waiting, hopefully with ICBC uh, road li- driver licensing is about two weeks, um, mm-hmm. two to three weeks. And, and if there's a real um, ICBC is watching how many people are passing their knowledge tests, that's what they're saying to us. And so if all of a sudden they see, oh, my gosh, in Squamish, you know, this week there was 50 knowledge tests that were passed. They're going to start adding more driver licensing tests in in that oh. area. So oh. they are aware that ride sharing is brand new and they're watching how many knowledge tests are being passed for class four restricted and they're adding in driver licensing opportunities in those areas. Okay, what kind of now, when you drive your own car for a ride hailing company, there are rules around the type of car you're allowed to drive, right? Like it's gotta be a later model car, it can't be too old, right? Exactly, yeah, no, so you, you need to have a 10-year car and newer. Um, ten year right. in one month because they didn't want a whole bunch of vehicles expiring at midnight on New Year's Eve, you know, the busiest night of the year. So 10 years in one month, um, you have to get your vehicle inspected by a uh, approved inspection facility. And then you have to keep up with that inspection as well. If you're doing, you know, 40,000 kilometers or more, then that becomes a six-month inspection as opposed to an annual inspection. Um we also have to do a criminal record check for a vulnerable sector, and that's actually what is actually taking some of the longest because that one actually has to get mailed back in a sealed envelope from Ottawa. So, you know, that's, you know, we've been coming up to that one. So if you're interested, get your knowledge test, book your road test, and right away get your RCMP a criminal record vulnerable sector check because, you know, that's one of the items that is taking some time. Um, and then uh, we have to also get a driver's abstract from you an N abstract, a commercial abstract, where we can, you know, we have to make sure that there's only so many points on your on your driver's abstract. Okay, okay, I'm interested in that driver record check. Like, let's say, for example, you've got, you know, you got a speeding ticket on there from five years ago. Does that disqualify you from being a a ride no, hail driver? Be okay, you're allowed to have. It's sort of like it's, it's it, it sticks to the same point system that we're all used to. So you know, we're allowed to have you know uh, four offensible uh, points and then there's certain ones that are you know obviously you know you know DUIs and stuff that are just absolute not no yeah, go, what right? would be what would rule you out as a ride hailing driver immediately like if you've got a an impaired case on your record you can't be a ride hail driver I assume right exactly and, yeah. and, and any driver there is a process if if we've deemed you unfit there's a process for drivers to, uh, to ask why they can sort of not not necessarily disputes the wrong word but they can you know, they could ask, you know, why, um, why they've been turned down. Okay, what about insurance? Does the company pay for ICBC for the insurance cover for, coverage for the driver, or does the driver have to pay insurance? 
Yeah, actually, the insurance has been really well done by ICBC. So if you're a driver, you don't have to change your rate class at all. Like you stick with your your exact same rate class for what you you normally use your car for. Uh, All you have to do is go into AutoPlan and say that you're a driver for Whistle, and they add that onto the insurance. And since it's all in the app, the minute you accept a ride and are deadheading to pick up the passenger, and while you have the passenger in the car, it's on our insurance. So anything that happens in that that time – it's on our insurance. We have you covered, and we've gone for sort of the maximum insurance um, that we can get with the five million three hundred comp and collision. Um, so, you know, our goal is really to try to get yeah to get as many locals interested in ride sharing using their own cars to collect fares, and really, I don't we don't want to be out of pocket to give it a try. You know, this is an opportunity for yeah. the very first time for you to make money with your own car. So, give it a try. You know, there are the steps that you have to take, but you know, you know, we're trying to make it so that you're not out of pocket um, besides the, the beginning licensing uh, fees um, to, to give it a try and, and see if you can make some extra money with it. Speaking to Dylan Green from the Whistle Rideshare app launching today in Tofino on Vancouver Island, launching on Monday in Whistler, and we're talking about what you have to do to be a ride-hailing driver. Uh, the insurance is pretty cool, the, the, the way they've structured it, so that when when you're not driving for ride hail and you turn off the app, you're covered on your own insurance. But as soon as you click on the app that you're available for duty, then you're covered by the ride hail insurance. Pretty amazing how the technology has been working on this. Yeah, no, it, the technology is definitely coming through on that one. And it's even more specific. It's like the minute you accept a ride and are deadheading for that ride and also while you're with the passenger because people understand that you could have the app on just at home and and, and, we, and we're really transparent with the rides that are coming in to make sure that you want to take that ride like if you don't really want to go to that destination because it's way in the wrong way you're going then you don't have, you can reject that request right so you know we're trying to make it so that hey i'm actually going across town to do an errand i'm just going to turn on my i'm going to wait till a ride going in that direction uh, happens and you can wait until you you have the ride you want so you can have your app um, online and, and the minute you actually tap to accept that's when the the icpc coverage is triggered onto our insurance right right how much can you make driving for ride hail i mean i know you're with with, with whistle your own sort of smaller app but generally speaking like i've heard some people say like oh man you know these ride hail drivers they're not paid fairly they're kind of exploited What's your perspective on that? Like, how much money can people make doing this? Well, you're totally right. Like, we're we're kind of trying to sell our app to passengers. You know, hey, this is an amazing app. And at the same time, we're trying to, you know, really promote it with drivers. Say, hey, you know, you can make some money here, right? So we're we're, we're yeah. definitely, you know, so we've set like a minimum minimum ride is ten dollars. So if you're just going one block, we recognize that our drivers are going to have to deadhead deadhead to get that person, and you know. And so we want to make it worth their while to go and do that. So we've, in, in the communities that we are, where we've got, you know, single highways, long highways going through our communities, you know, we want to make that the minimum. Um, and we've, we haven't gone super low. Like, we're not trying to replace taxi companies. We're trying to add cars and help out. And so our rates are pretty much very similar to, to taxi fares. So, you know, we're really not trying to, like, go super low here we're trying to make it worthwhile for our drivers and then add cars and and provide a good service to passengers that really just want a a ride they want to know when the ride's coming they want to know how long it's going to take to get their destination you know and really that's so that's sort of the you know the we're trying to you know attract both sides and and that's the pricing model that we've done to try to do both 
I think one of the things that's attractive to people if they want to try this for themselves is, first of all, there's a lot of hurdles you got to clear, especially getting that class four commercial license that you just described. But it's certainly not impossible for people to do it if they if they if they try uh, and to study and, and pass the test. You can do it. I think for a lot of people, it's attractive to be able to work your own hours, right? Like, you know, I, I feel like working for a couple hours today, I'll turn the app on and I'm on duty and I can make a couple of bucks. Is, is that the way you guys are operating in, with Whistle as well in, in Tofino and Whistler, that people set their own hours when they want to work? For sure. And I mean, that's yeah. actually when ride sharing starts to work because you really want what we're talking about is you need lots of cars, say, on a busy Friday afternoon or yeah. when the when the plane lands in Tofino. And so, you know, the casual drivers are going to know, hey, if I turn this app on for two or three hours at this time, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the most amount of money. And so all of a sudden there, there's the solution. There's that mobility solution. A local transportation company couldn't have enough cars and drivers, a fleet of cars and drivers, just for that two hours when the plane arrives or, or, or when everyone's going to the restaurants, you know, and, and then the rest of the day is dead. So that's why... Yeah. You know, if you're opening up, you know, locals with their own cars who want to make a fare, then they can just flood that little peak request time and, and, and make quite a bit of money in a short time and then just go back to their day-to-day. So, I mean, that's the solution, right? That's, that's it right there. Dylan, congratulations on your success so far. Good luck with the launch. Thanks so much, Mike. Okay, thank you. That's Dylan Green. He is the CEO of the Whistle ride-hailing app, which has been approved to operate in Whistler. They launched there on Monday and also in Tofino on Vancouver Island. All right, welcome back. This is Mike Smith filling in for Simi today. Let's talk about the federal conservative leadership race now. And it seems like the biggest news coming out of this race so far is not so much who's running for the job, but who is not going for the gig. We've had so many high-profile people announce they will not seek the federal conservative leadership, notably Rana Ambrose, who a lot of people thought would be the front runner for sure if she had entered the race. But we've also seen Jean Charest, the former conservative premier back out, Pierre Poliev, very high-profile MP, Candace Bergen the other day, another uh, conservative MP I think is really talented, and uh, she has now stepped, announced that she will not seek the job. With all these people bailing out, it just seems to kind of clear the tracks for Peter McKay as the presumptive front runner for this job and maybe are we seeing a peter mckay coronation in the works here as the federal conservative party leader but i got to tell you he has had a rough start and we're going to get into a couple of the miscues that he has made so far in running for this job but peter mckay was on the show here yesterday with host sterling fox he was the first major interview he's done with the BC News outlet. Have a listen to this. Remember, you might have heard how McKay said, criticized the Conservatives before he announced his leadership run, saying in the last election it was like they missed uh, scoring a goal in an open net when running against uh, Justin Trudeau. Here's what he said about that yesterday. It was an honest assessment of the conditions during the election campaign where we, uh, the party, I had a lot to offer Canadians. We had a platform, I think, that was thoughtful, that was costed, that should have been attractive to Canadians. And there were a lot of issues, let's say, that the Prime Minister was dealing with both during the campaign, but clearly before that, uh, that were affecting the economy, that were affecting people in their daily lives, that were affecting our relationships with other countries. 
there was a very, I would describe it as, as quite detrimental record that was apparent for all to see, and yet we still were not able to, to keep a sports analogy, get the, the ball over the goal line yeah. and, and win the election. And so uh, it was, uh, I guess, having spent a lot of time in rinks and played sports my whole life, that, that scenario translated into the statement. I don't regret saying it. I think we need to be honest when we assess our performance. And, and then learn from it and, and do better the next time. It might have been a little raw. It might have been still uh, too soon to make that assessment. But I think conservatives have to be honest with themselves. And that's what I was trying to do. All right. It's Peter McKay speaking to Sterling Fox on yesterday's show there. And I actually thought that was a pretty good comment that he made, openly criticizing the last conservative election campaign. Why not? I think when you're running for the job, that's not a bad thing to say. It's some of the other things that have popped up in the last couple of days that have created some problems for Peter McKay. Let's check in with political commentator Elise Mills now. I've been following this one very closely. Elise, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. So let me, let's talk about some of the mistakes I think McKay has made here. Let's talk first of all about the other day he was, uh, he was asked about his position on whether Canada uh, should move its embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which has been a long-standing Conservative Party policy. And in an interview he gave with the post-millennial news site, he gave a very kind of confusing answer on it, saying it was a, a complicated subject, that calling for a move like that would be presumptuous in his words. And then after there was a backlash among Conservatives saying, look, this is long-held Conservative policy, he kind of walked it back. What is going on with this guy? Why would he make a mistake like that? Well, you know, as Peter says, you know, it's okay to be raw and offer an honest assessment. So I'll do that with Mr. McKay right now. Yeah, right, good. <laughs> and, you know, I do appreciate, you know, the honesty and that he's willing to have that conversation. So I'm being a bit snarky, but uh, but I think that actually I would love the opportunity to sit down with Mr. McKay myself and, and have a raw conversation because it, that particular issue I think is pretty thorny. Um my father's side is is Jewish, and so I just want to say that. I think that's now common knowledge. Uh, but I, I feel like with you're following in the footsteps of Trump, and there's yeah. yes, it is a conservative position, but I think that in the position of running for leader to make bold, big foreign policy statements like that, that would dramatically shift uh, our foreign policy or our perceived relationship with Israel and therefore Palestine, I think that it, it's probably not the right place to to jump that high. Um, I think, Mr. McKay, my, my idea around this is that that's all well and fine, and I love that we're, you're, you're taking us to the next level. Uh, but I think the audience, uh, the majority of the audience, wants to get into big ideas, uh, answers around climate change, um, you know, calls for other social issues like what's happening to middle class Canadians. I mean, we know what's happened to low income Canadians, what's happened to the middle class, you know, they can't afford their homes. Uh, these are issues that really pertain to the, I think, the wheelhouse of conservative ideology. And, you know, I think he's he's somehow sort of gone from 
really basic and I think below the the bar commentary around yoga not being manly to all of a sudden talking big ideas around Jerusalem. And I just think he needs to find his way. And it it brings into what is the priority on his leadership campaign? I think you have to always begin with policy, Mike. You know, the communications is the sexy stuff, but you don't get sexy communications when you don't have a foundation. And the foundation in a campaign is the policy. Okay, speaking of the yoga cracks here at at Trudeau, and this is one that I think McKay took some heat over when his campaign sent out a tweet on his account on the weekend criticizing Justin Trudeau for spending $875 in Liberal Party money on yoga sessions. And I think a lot of people were looking at that tweet and saying, really, is this where you're going back to now, like taking yeah. shots at him over yoga? Now, let me let me play this for you, Elise, because here's McKay. He sat down with CTV News the other day. He was asked about this yoga thing on, on Twitter, uh, and he, he basically tried to walk that one back, too. And then you're going to hear one of his handlers uh, jump in here to cut the interview off. Here is Peter McKay talking to CTV. You say civility. I, I noticed you, there was a video put on Twitter um, talking about Justin Trudeau's yoga expenses. And is that civil, though? I mean, highlighting 800 and some on dollars in, in, in no, yoga expenses? No, it isn't. And, and uh, that was something that happened that I, I, I'm not proud of. I, I, don't, uh, I don't have the opportunity always to vet every single thing that goes on that social media account. So we're going to do better. And in that, at that moment, his team abruptly ended the interview. I, uh, that's that's uh, quite. He said civility. I, I mean, she's just doing her job. She's a journalist. I'm doing my that's job, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's CTV reporter Heather right there. I think <laughs> asking a good question, and then McKay's people jump in and cut the interview off. Elise, this is like communications 101 stuff. What's going on? This is like bad performance here by McKay and his people here, I think. Well, you and I have known each other a long time, and you know I've represented some controversial uh, political figures and some pretty loved political figures. And in between all that, what we try and do is we try and bring the essence out of the candidate or the politician or the prime minister, whomever it is. And we always play to their strengths. And the irony behind that interview, it was probably the most authentic interview I've seen from Peter McKay in, since he's, you know, sort of been dancing around the leadership and now uh, in the leadership. And you, you've got to remember, uh, you know, 11 days before E-Day in the 2019 campaign, he took a big kick, a big swing against Andrew Scheer. Uh, so he needed this interview, I think, to redeem himself. And I think, you know, apart from prior to the yoga comment, they were actually just talking about his campaign. He was relaxed. He was, I think, very credible. He showed humility. It was all going tickety-boo. And the handlers, it wasn't just one, it was two. And they came down with tremendous force. I would never have come in like that. I wow. would have recognized that my boss was doing an extremely good job. He was comfortable. He wasn't uncomfortable at all. And that in his answer, he showed remorse and humility. And I think the only misstep is that he was very transparent in the fact that he's not in control of his communications. And I will tell you, as you know, Mike, Gordon Campbell, Stephen Harper, those two gentlemen, Brad Wall, when I worked for Brad Wall, 
they were always in control of their messaging. I couldn't even get Patrick Brown to listen and slow down just long enough to take a beat. And that was a particularly heated time. Uh, But I always feel that they need to be in control of their social media. And it looks to me like he's not even in control of his policy right now. Uh, So there, and it's, and I, I don't want to, have this interview come across that I am 100% against Peter McKay. What my problem is, is I'm 100% against what's happened to the party. We're really stuck in 2011. We haven't done the legwork around our policy foundation, which has yeah. sort of led to this crisis around our leadership convention, or our leadership race. And it's probably left these two leader, I would say the two front runners, which is Peter McKay and then Mr. O'Toole, Aaron O'Toole. It's yeah. left them in a bit of a, a predicament where they've had to do probably more heavy lifting there's probably more emphasis on everything that they're saying and because everybody that i've talked to is starving for something remotely intelligent to 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 be happening and remotely visionary to be happening at this particular time all right welcome back mike smith in for simi as we continue my discussion with elise mills on the conservative party leadership do you think peter mckay elise can be stopped at this point or is this uh, is he running away with it here I think he's running away with it. He has, you know, 22, uh, well, he has 20 MPs and two senators backing him. And, you know, I know people are saying that big caucus support doesn't particularly lead to a coronation. I think it will depend whether this is the membership of 2017 uh, or if this is now the membership I might think it is. And if all the little conversations I'm having with one or two people at a time, you know, and then several times a week, uh, you know, the membership is, it may look like still waters, but there's a lot happening underneath. And it will be interesting to see how many people actually go to Toronto for this leadership race. I think there's some very big names that have spoken to me about not wanting to go, sort of holding their noses and, and sort of enjoying watching it at home with a couple of drinks versus attending, which tells me they're not they're not engaged um you know it's it's a weird time and i think it's not that peter mckay is not worthy of running for leadership it's just that when the party is sitting in this position where it is stale dated and even mr harper would not want us to be consistently reliving the 2011 success um, the, par- the, the country has changed. The world has changed. Conservatives have changed. Uh, you can see okay. that in, in a variety of our policies and, our, and even people's positions on how we're going to you know, offer something on sustainability and climate change, for example. Yeah. Uh, so Mr. McKay might be a product of something that's a little bit more stale dated. Okay, let's take a few calls here, Elise, in the time we got left. Hi, Karen and Surrey. Oh, hi there. First of all, I find it laughable that we're actually calling out Peter McKay for bringing up the yoga when I remember orange, orange juice gate and the liberal government is just as guilty as being so unbelievably um, petty. And I don't know why our media has, has not kept up with the SNC Lavalin scandal. There has to be some accountability and McKay, I believe is the best candidate for the leadership of, uh, of well, the Conservative Party. Well, and you may, also, you may, be, you may be right. Finish. Yeah. Go ahead. Let me finish. I just want to say also, Andrew Shearer, I recall when the Liberals were raking him over the coals about his party paying for his kids' education. I'm yeah. sorry, but you know what? Let's get back to the real issues here. We've got a country that has record unemployment. We, ha- we have a province 
that our own prime minister forgot to mention during our celebrations. People are laughing at Trump because he called Canada City. Our prime minister can't even remember a province. We only have 10. So you know what? Here's the thing. We need to start focusing on the real issues of Canada. And I agree. Okay, thank, thank you, Nicole. Elise, Elise. Mike, Mike, if I can just respond, I, I completely agree with this caller. Um, the issue about the yoga is that that's Liberal Party funding. We don't get to tell the Liberals how they're going to spend their members' donations. The same way we don't want to be told how we spend our donations. Uh, and the reason why Mr. Shear got into big trouble about that is that we have a very different perspective uh and i think it was best said actually by mr harper when he was prime minister this we still see as public funding even though it's not traditionally coming through taxpayers dollars through the government it's coming from our members taxpayers dollars you get receipted on that everybody that 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 uh, preceded uh, mr Shear took absolute care with that and that was the problem with the membership the other thing i i completely agree with the caller. It's not that Mr. McKay is not a formidable opponent to Mr. Scheer, or sorry, Mr. Mr. Trudeau, but as a conservative who's been in the trenches, who's probably, how long have I been on air, Mike? 12 years? Yeah. I, if I'm going to fight for something, I want to be inspired. I am tired of, of having to put my, my thought process on the back burner okay. and sort of just row with the, with the pablum. Elise, the time goes by always so quickly when you're on. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. Uh, all right, that's Elise Mills. She's a conservative political commentator with her take on McKay. Here's the good news for Peter McKay. Brand new Ipsos poll out uh, shows that if he was the leader of the party, uh, he could potentially beat just uh, uh, Justin Trudeau.